Well, hi everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. As always, you can follow my so-called adventures at tobymiller.org. And I'm very fortunate to be in the, as we say in the media, lovely home, but it really is <laughs> a fantastic home of Dorothy Brody and Leo Brody, uh, new friends of mine, but in the case of Leo, uh, a new friend whose work I've known for 25 years. So uh, it's really a privilege to be here. Now, I'm hoping that I can attract Dorothy, a fantastic artist, into this conversation, if not today, then another day. But I think I've secured Leo as an interlocutor. Yes, I mean, you can't yeah. stop me. A man who, there's a, Mike Rubo, the documentary filmmaker, mm -hmm. he, I think he made this movie that I loved in the 70s called The Man Who Could Not Be Stopped or Wouldn't Be Stopped or whatever. Right. So, uh, Leo, there's so much that's so rich in your work over so many years, but I'd love to kick off with what you're up to right now, what's happening for you here and now. Well, now I'm just trying to finish up the semester, basically, but it's, all, <laughs> it's done, you know, the papers are graded, the grades are in, uh, and all, those, all that accounting, and so now I'm kind of looking at some space that I can actually get some work done in. Get some work done. And I want to come back to a project that I've been thinking about for a while, which is a project really about the history of, of horror and, and the monstrous. Um, I, for several years, I've taught this course called The Monster and the Detective. The Monster and the Detective? Yeah. And this is a University of Southern California, Yes, it's way, a general education folks. course. It's a big lecture course. Wow. And the premise of it is basically that the uh, monster, you know, these are two intertwined cultural figures starting really in the end of the 18th century. Mm. Of course, mm. they're precedents for the monster, not so much for the detective. The monster is the figure of disorder, the detective as a seeker for order, and how they, how they work together and why they have become such prominent cultural figures and how... How the plots of those stories, you know, are we take them in, uh, they're sort of part of our cultural makeup, and then we superimpose them on uh, political events and social events and things like that. Wow. So I'm immediately thinking of uh, that moment in Bad Timing Essential Obsession mm -hmm. when Harvey Keitel says to Art Garfunkel, worst to be effect of, because Art Garfunkel is the psychotherapist, spy, <laughs> rapist, and Harvey Keitel is the. Viet Viennese police officer, something worse effective. We're not so different, you and I, or we're alike, you and I. Oh yeah, and that and yeah. the yes, the yeah. detective, certainly the detective and the and the psychopath, let's say, yeah. uh, often come together. I mean, especially in, in the twentieth century, or the detective and the psychiatrist make an alliance. There's a line in um, Ross McDonald's novel, The Chill, um, uh, where um, the the psychiatrist uh, says to the detective, uh, you know, you, yeah. you take care of the ex external life, I take care of the inner life, <laughs> and we work together there. And you know, they have that affinity. Um, you know, even Holmes, for you know, go back to Sherlock Holmes, yeah. and you know, Watson would say to Holmes, well, how do you understand? He says, well, because I have a criminal mind myself, you know, so yeah. I can empathize. So it's quite it's the, that interesting breakdown of opposites, isn't it? Where there's a logocentric mm -hmm. interdependence between what appear to be complete opposites. Exactly, and they kind of it's really they really do interpenetrate. Yeah, in that way. yeah. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. It's a great topic because I guess, despite the connections that you've made quite obvious in your comments, they're genres that are often kept rather separate. Mm -hmm. Here's this thing called horror, which probably has a detective in it, but. It, Here's this other thing called detection. Although I guess Hitchcock is an interesting. Well, Hitchcock case. certainly you know crosses the line. Yeah. I mean, you know, the th at least the theoretical difference is that the monster can never really be killed, yeah. whereas the criminal can be caught. Yeah. And so the you know the monster tends to exist um, in a story of his own, uh, where the detective goes from story to story and actually completes the job there, although of course crime in the world is never finally solved, just as evil in the world has never finally gotten rid of in the monster story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think what's also interesting to me that I begin to think of as you speak of this is the way in which here in the United States, but not only in the US, we so often seek to personify forms of politics that we disapprove of. Sure. Uh, and sometimes there's good reason to disapprove of them, but I'm thinking of you know, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, but under the contemporary, uh, Gaddafi, uh, Hussein, uh, Osama bin Laden, where, yes, these 
people do espouse horrendous doctrines, but there's something else going on in the desire to find one monster who right. can and explain wider tendencies. Well, and also to kind of, uh, you know, uh, to avoid the, the need to explain, and certainly that's sort of what the monster does, or the, you know, the monsterizing of, of these figures. You know, that they're just outside of history, they have no causality, they just have come in and they're monstrous, and so we don't have to explain what, you know, what's the problem with their doctrines or what's the problem with the way that they achieve power or things like that. Yeah. So that, I mean, you know, to, to label something as monstrous means that you can just push it away and not have to talk about it because monstrousness is outside of human ken in some sense. Yeah, interesting. So you've been teaching this for a while. Mm -hmm. What sorts of, is it undergraduate, graduate? It's undergraduate. Uh, in it, it's a uh, general ed course. It's a general ed course. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I'd want to do obviously do a lot more with it with a subject than I could in, a, in an undergraduate lecture course, but you know, I basically begin in the 18th century, you know, with the Gothic, right. and you know, try to lead them through this. I actually usually start out with um, a, a novel called The Monk, Matthew Lewis's The Monk, which is kind of 1796, uh, and I pair that with The Exorcist as a film oh. uh -huh. uh, to really start out with the relationship of horror to religion and how it springs out of religion and how horror is often uh, an alternate religion uh, with all sorts of ritual trappings and things like that. And, and often, you know, and a combatant of, of official religion, especially Christianity. Now, I've, I must admit, I, I don't know that novel, but I'm assuming that 15 or 20 years later, you take us to Mary Shelley. Sure, to Frankenstein, you know, and Frankenstein and... Uh, and, and Dracula, and, and using Poe as a kind of linchpin between the, the detective and the, and the horrific, since he dabbled in both of them. Sure. And, uh, oh, you know, interesting, yeah. And, uh, the Raven. The so Raven, and, yeah. sure. And, you know, yeah. so many of his Mask of the Red Death and William Wilson, and, and you know, his fascination with the doppelganger and the, the double so self. Is this when they get to see some Roger Corman films? Well, you will follow the House of Usher. Some <laughs> clips from Follow the House of Usher, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's a pairing. It's, it's, every week it's a pairing of, of film and literature because one of the topics, in a way, um, because it's a general education course, it's not just about horror and detective, it's also about literary things and cinematic things. So the issue of adaptation, let's say, mm. comes up. What's the relationship between Frankenstein and James Whale's film of Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein and all the Frankensteins that, that come after? And, you know, I suppose try to move towards, in a way, a kind of theory of the monstrous, like what are the essential monsters versus what are the corollary monsters? <laughs> and, you know, do, you know what, what are monsters about? Do they occupy certain parts of the brain? Or they, do they represent certain primal fears, mm -hmm. different, distinguishable primal fears? You know, so that's, that's part of the fun of it, to kind of dabble in those ideas. So after some time of teaching this and having had presumably lots of feedback from hundreds of fresh mm -hmm. minds every year, mm -hmm. what's your take on, because we've talked a bit about the monster, What's your take on the detective? Well, the detective particularly is a, um, I mean, the monster, of course, comes out of the primordial past in, in many ways, even though he gets this big revival at the end of the 18th century and afterwards. The detective is a city person. The detective is connected very to... Very urban, isn't it? Very urban, yeah, connected yeah. to the modern city, connected to class structure. Yeah. The person who can actually maneuver between lower, middle, and upper classes, in a yeah. way. Um, can find the roots of the city, you know, the byways and pathways and alleyways of the city. So he really is a 19th century figure in that way. So this is, uh, in a way, uh, this is the Ernest Mandel position in Delightful Murder, uh, mapping the emergence of a detective onto class change. Mm -hmm. uh, onto class change and, well, and also the perception of, of class change, that is, right. Uh, the way the city and Poe's uh, great little story, The Man of the Crowd, uh, tells I you this. I don't know that one. Uh, it starts out with a guy, he's sitting in, a, um, in his uh, club in London uh, yeah. with a big bay window in front of him and he just sits there and he talks and he thinks about the different times of day and the different people that he sees walking out in the streets mm -hmm. and how, you know, how they change from the work day the early morning day, the lunch day, the work day, to the night time, and the kind of the different kinds of people who come out at night. So, I mean, part of the part of the idea of the of the city of the modern city 
is that class distinction is in your face. Yeah. In a way yeah. that it didn't happen in an agricultural society yeah, in the same sure, way. I mean, you, you know, sure. you had the laborers and the lord and things like that. But you didn't have all those varieties. They're physically disparate. Yeah, they're physically disparate, and you didn't have the yeah. varieties of jobs and works. Right, and division of, of labor is different. There's yeah. a wonderful expression in one of G.K. Chesterton's essays. I think wrote the Father Brown. Was that G.K. <laughs> right, Father, Father Brown, Brown stories? Yeah. yeah. G.K. Chesterton has an essay about the detective novel, in which he refers, I think I'm right in saying, to the flints and tiles of everyday existence as being absolutely crucial to this in terms of this question of urban observation. Yeah, and you know, and so much about Father Brown and so much about Sherlock Holmes is really about that observation. Oh, I see by that mud on the, the edge of his boot that he was actually in Yorkshire recently. You know, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible to grow tired of that stuff somehow because it's now become just a wonderful troping mechanism of itself. Right. And it lets you, you know, it, it's an interesting kind of control right. too, because yeah. that's what the detective, as a as a mythic figure, as a you know figure for the audience, I think allows a kind of control uh, over um, the disparities and varieties of urban life and the confusions yeah. of urban life. Yeah, sure. I should say, folks, that if I manage to get Dorothy um, to participate in this either now or another time, one of her many wonderful series of paintings that I love is a film noir series. Okay. So I hope we can push that to one, keep that to one side and talk about it sometime. But yeah, oh, what a beautiful oh, panther. Why isn't my cat more like you? There's a pod cat, a podcast cat named Rosie, whose real name is. Watch out, he doesn't step on your on your laptop there. You're beautiful, panther. Rosie's real name is Pissy Bitchy, but she won't answer to that. She'll only answer to Rosie. Oh, good. But she is the, the official podcast. Uh, good. Oh, but Panther good. is a great beauty. Yes. yes he, oh, and adorable. Yes, you don't mind being told how clever. No, no, he's very. He wants to be admired, that's, that's definitely. Yeah. Right. Definitely. <laughs> oh my God! And such a beautiful coat. I recently took. The podcat Rosie off to have her first ever shampoo and set, <laughs> and discovered that after many after many years of being lumbered with her, she actually has deep down beneath it all a beautiful silken coat, not unlike Mr. P's. Uh -huh. <laughs> her problem is that she is a depressive and violent creature, and she doesn't clean herself well. Oh really? So she ends up feeling very coarse, uh -huh. whereas Panther yeah, well, feels absolutely. How old is she? Uh, Pissy Bitchy? Yeah. If I can use again the technical <laughs> right. Cattery name. Uh, well, I've had her for seven years. I guess she's nine. She's nine? Oh, so she's getting she's on a bit. He, well, he's about nine now. She, she lives in Los Angeles, yes. But anyway, we do our best. So, you're looking to bring these two figures that you're suggesting are so close but have actually been kept separate analytically mm -hmm. into into a, a book. Yeah, I would like to. I think that, you know, the, the detective, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do because sure. when I proposed this book earlier on to various editors, um, they wanted me to soft pedal the detective part and focus on the horror part, um, which, you know, I, I could do certainly do. Uh, and with my usual penchant for you know, wanting to get into the historical roots of it. I've actually been thinking a lot about ghosts and purgatory and the English Reformation <laughs> and things like that. I mean, just trying to get some kind of running, running jump into the background. Well, you have a dark past as a medievalist as well. Well, as I have been, yeah. Film not, not, historian, not, film theorist, cultural theorist, cultural commentator. Yeah, not, I wouldn't say I'm an, not a, certainly not an official me medievalist, more 17th and 18th century. Oh, my apologies. It's okay. Speaking of which, I want I'm to happy know to be about... happy to a medievalist. <laughs> but I want to know about... The, right, well, we won't talk about that. I want to know about the note on the front door, <laughs> which I absolutely loved. I'm not sure if that was there when I came here once no. before. No, no, we dinner. just got that, we just got I that love door it. Now, what is that saying? There's a note that greets you folks as you... Go to the Brodie's front door. On the right-hand side of the door is the bell you push to say, I'm sorry, I'm really late, it's not my fault. It's Ian Master's fault. And on the left-hand side, there's a note instructing you. In, there's a kind of denunciation of the Renaissance. Well, no, it's, it's because of the, the doormat with the, with the images of uh, the Mona Lisa. 
on them that you will then, you know, yeah, tread your feet on. You will trample on them. You will trample on. So I wanted to, I wanted to put up a disclaimer that you know the fact that you wiped your feet on the Mona Lisa, would you know was not. Um, not meant to disrespect the Renaissance. Exactly, or Da Vinci, or or anybody it else. It had the opposite effect on me. I thought, <laughs> well, these guys have really denounced all of this. <laughs> what do you think, Panther? You're so beautiful. Look at him. Um, so. That's interesting. Now, I wanted to ask you, before we get on to talking about some of your other important works, I'm very interested about what you just said. I've just hired a publicist for the first time for this book which just come out. And I would be the last person as a former speechwriter to be precious about my prose. But I'm really interested in what you said about, well, I've pitched this to some editors and they've urged me to dump the detective and emphasize Or the soft pedal him, you know. Okay, I, soft I, pedal. Yeah, I mean, they, they were really much more uh, interested in the horror part. This is because of the era of the vampire. I think that's and probably, and it's true. So but, I mean, but, you know, and and I, I, you know, so and I, I don't nice feel... To do both, to yeah. do both in one well, well, that's another I, issue, isn't it? That's right, yeah. maybe too much to and do I think both. I'm reducing the detective maybe to a chapter, but... <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that because, in fact, if you look at the history, the detective, except, I mean, the detective has virtually vanished from popular culture except in fiction. In television. In, in, oh, in literary in fiction, fiction and tele, no, literary fiction and television, serial television, because the detective is a serial. Um, listen, I've got to tell you, it's only in the last three weeks that I've discovered Foyle's War. Oh, oh good. We love it oh. So. It's really God, good. I'm loving it. I've only seen the first two. I, watch it again I just already. it's on Amazon Prime, mm -hmm. free, pretty much, or cheap for cheap on Amazon Prime. It's a great series. Oh my God, it is fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Watch it again. Well, I, I just watched episode two where Charles Dance plays some absolute. Nazi figure, who's oh, the right, fifth right. columnist, and he he stares at Michael Kitchen as far as says, "Are you a Jew?" <laughs> it is cosmic. It is just fantastic. Charles Dance is certainly specializing in well, being evil. <laughs> He's in Game of Thrones, right? He's the evil Potter familius of the Lannisters. Well, things. you know what's interesting? I thought of him as a kind of classical actor, and then after watching this literally yesterday. <laughs> I looked up on Wikipedia and it says, renowned for playing villains and evil bastards and whatnot, you know, is the first line. Yeah, remember me was the what romantic hero romant of the crown. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Well, right. I think we're a little bit older than a lot of the Wikipedia <laughs> entry writers. <laughs> In any event, I, I take your point about that. For me, I guess, when I was very young, monsters were it. I was a big... Uh, Todd Browning, James Whale fan, mm -hmm. uh, loved those early uh, talky horror movies. But very rapidly I became much more enamored of the detective figure. And I think you and I may even have had a conversation about this at that dinner table mm -hmm. over there. Uh, you know, when I returned to LA just before the new year, uh, rediscovering Chandler and reading them all was a remarkable moment. Oh, you yeah. know, and, and just to see how the prose that I love in the world, so much of it comes from U.S. forms of crime fiction, particularly Chandler and Hammett. And Hammett, uh, yeah. Whereas certainly when I was younger, reading Mary Wollstonecraft, Shelley, uh, and uh, the Frankenstein story, and then reading the Dracula uh, story, that was a, had a, a major impact. But I think at a literary level, in terms of contemporary prose, there's nothing to match. Well, you know, and they're very, especially Hammett, but Chandler too. I mean, you're kind of very influenced by Hemingway and that that kind of style too. And um, although Chandler gets more adorned, Chandler with his similes <laughs> and metaphors, making more, fun of Hemingway, making fun. He actually yeah. attacks Hemingway yeah. overtly in a couple of places. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, let's let's go back a little way, if we may, Leo. Not too too far. You uh, have this. Reviewer, a study of the Hollywood Sun. It came out, we're talking in May of 2012, and I'm thinking it must have been about a year ago. About a year ago. But that book came out on your website, leobrody.com. A terrific website, by the way, listeners. 
uh, there are a couple of pretty good grabs of you talking and reading, talking about and reading from the book in front of the sign. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that people all over the world know. Today, I received a copy of a book that I co-wrote with some other people about Hollywood, translated into Turkish, <laughs> uh, without, you know, say so, copyright, right. or any of those things. But glad that it's out. And it's seven hundred. It's a real page uh, turner, of no, course. Thank you. But it's more of a. It's it is something of a book. You have managed to capture one of the icons of the world. No, well, thank you, thank you, Toby. Now, yeah, I mean, I mean, in part, it was. It's in my neighborhood. It's something that I see all the time, and everyone around here sees all the time, and to try to understand. I mean, I think you know, if I would try to figure out what the thread of most of the things that I like to write about is. It's really about taking something that people think doesn't have a history, whether that's fame or masculinity or the Hollywood sign, and, and giving it a history. Giving it a history. Giving it a context, giving it a history, finding its roots, finding it the, all the missteps and blind alleys and things that happened to it along the way. Now, in this case, my you know, outer understanding is that it starts out as Holly... Hollywoodland. Hollywoodland, yeah. right? It's a real... I mean, people... This podcast may be listened to by not that many people, but it's listened to in 50 countries each week. Mm -hmm. And 50% uh, of your audience is here in the US, but 50% is in those other 50 countries. I'm guessing every single listener's heard of the Hollywood sign, uh -huh. but could you take us back through a little bit of that slightly disreputable real estate history? Sure, sure. Oh, actually the book, I mean, what I tried to do with the book is um, we make it an intertwined history of Hollywood, the Hollywood sign and Hollywood itself, not just as, a, um, as an idea, but you know, as all, in all its aspects, as a, as a geog real geographic place, as a suburb of Los Angeles, and then part of Los Angeles as a vision, as a dream, as an aspiration, yeah. as a fantasy, uh, etc. And before the sign, the first chapter is actually Hollywood before the sign when it gets founded, when it was a rich uh, suburb for people to get away from Los Angeles. And it was founded in 1887. And uh, it was very much a temperance place for prohibitionists to come to, uh, rich prohibitionists. Um, free land was given to church, people who would build churches and things like that. And. Um, but by the time of the sign, when the sign was put up in 1923, there was a fantastic uh, real estate boom in Los Angeles. And um, spearheading it was the Los Angeles Times that was, uh, you know, under the directorship of Harry Chandler. By the way, when we say directorship, we mean thumb. <laughs> thumb, exactly. <laughs> Nothing happened, well, not, not just the LA Times, hardly anything happened in Los Angeles that Harry Chandler didn't have a thumb in. Yeah. in one yeah. way or another. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, Harry Chandler came out as a kind of tubercular teenager um, to enjoy the weather here, as so many people did uh, in the old days, and became this fantastic power. So the LA Times is not only uh, fostering this real estate boom, it, Harry Chandler is also buying up property <laughs> everywhere to uh, cash in on the same boom that he is publicizing in the LA Times. And he's, <laughs> he said to the uh, designer, nice. designer nice. of the sign, right, designer of the sign, uh, I want this to be seen from Wilshire. Uh, and Wilshire, for those of your listeners who don't know uh, LA geography, is, you know, is a pretty far distance away. And in fact, in those days, in the early 20s, it was a kind of dirt road through the oil fields. It was just about to boom real, in a real estate uh, manner itself. So the letters are like 45 feet high. And it said Hollywood Land, and was and it was somewhat thereafter. I couldn't quite pin down the date, but it was the light bulbs were put into the sign, and so it would blink on and off at night. It would say Hollywood Land, Hollywood Land. So it's almost a prototype for the neon signs that you and I grew up with. Well, in fact, neon was first introduced in the United States in in Los Angeles. Is that so? Yeah. And uh, so all the, the idea of the illuminated sign and the billboard, there's a big controversy over billboards in Los Angeles at this point, too. Well, yeah. the, it's, that's never stopped. That's never, no. <laughs> right. We have that today. Yeah. Oh, yes. 
So, in fact, the first neon in America was in a car dealership in downtown Los Angeles, imported from France. Uh, so, you know, the idea, of course, I mean, what else is, if no, people don't know anything about Los Angeles, they know about the movies and they know the, about the idea of, of performance and presentation. Sure. And that's it. So it, it exists, existed in Los Angeles uh, at a time, you know, when the movies were fairly embryonic. Sure. And when Hollywood was not a synecdoche. No, in exactly. The way that it is now. And that's one of the interesting things, you know, how did Hollywood become a synecdoche? Mm for everything that went on in the movie business, right. when in fact there were very few studios, hardly any studios in Hollywood, very few uh, performers lived in Hollywood, very few movies were made in Hollywood, but somehow Hollywood became the name, and it happens really in the early 20s. It's interesting today because uh, Culver City is branding itself as studio land, mm -hmm. but if you went to Outer Mongolia or Inner Buffalo, and you said, where were the movie studios located in the 20s, 30s through to today? People would say Hollywood. Hollywood. Well, in fact, in the late 1930s, in the late uh, 1930s, uh, Culver City actually, uh, various activists in Culver City put up a petition. They wanted to change their name to Hollywood because more movies were made there than were made in Hollywood. I didn't know that. Yes. So that was, you know, comical in itself. I mean, you know, at the time, even the early film, they were all over the place. Uh, you know, sure. Ince had his studios in Santa Monica. Um, Max Sennett was up in Glendale and, and that area, uh, Echo Park. Um, the, only, the only major uh, studio in the old uh, boundaries of Hollywood was when Chaplin did his studio that's on La Brea now still uh, in about 1918 or so. But, they, you know, there was a big fight. They didn't want any... You know, these were people, these rich people who were still there, who were the founders of Hollywood uh, and the early early residents, didn't want any noise, didn't want anything um, smacking of show business or things like that. Or want, Judaism? I mean, was or there Jude, an anti-Semitic? Yeah. Well, there was an anti-Semitic side. There, there used yeah. to be, you know, in, in um, you know, they would have rooming houses that said no, no Jews, dogs, or actors allowed. Things like that. The JDA conspiracy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, there was definitely that. And, they, you know, they wanted to preserve property values. And actually, one of the, uh, one of the great uh, real estate um, developers of Hollywood, a guy named uh, Charles Toberman, uh, after Chaplin somehow managed to get in and the city council accepted that, he pushed through another law which pushed every, everything down below Santa Monica Boulevard. You're sort of out of the confines of, of residential Hollywood. Um, and, you know, that, that was going to be it's like, a, you know, the get, a ghetto for the studios. So given all of that, is it the sign itself and its remarkable capacity to typify Los Angeles that's managed to have this synecdochic effect? Well, I think in part, this, well, this, it takes a while, though. It's really, I would say, something, you know, it, it's so embedded in people's consciousnesses yeah. In the way that you said, that I think it's sort of hard to realize uh, with the fact that in, it's really only in the last 40 years. It's really since the 1970s. That, that people actually talk of it that way. That the sign, well, well the sign, the, the land part of the sign was taken down in 1949. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the city uh, uh, recreation and parks department wanted to tear it down as a public menace. It hadn't been maintained since the late 1930s uh, by the real estate company. Nobody cared about it anymore. Uh, and, um, but then the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce said, okay, we'll, we'll take care of it if you take the land part off. So they took the land part off and then it became Hollywood. And so that was a very significant moment. And then they sort of patched it up for another couple decades after that because it's just sheet metal. It was, you know, it was, you know, it was transient. It was impermanent. It was not supposed to last for decades and decades. It was just a, it was a billboard. Uh, and by the or by the 70s, 1970s, it was really falling apart. It was totally tattered. This is when this strange group comes together to preserve it, right? Right. In the late 1970s, I mean, there's several committees before this, preserve the sign, et cetera, which never go, you know, they paint, repaint them or they repatch them, and, right. uh, but then they fall apart again. 
but they, they re entirely reconstruct the sign in 1978. Now, tell us who's on that committee. Well, the two, the spearheads, if the, you know, the kind of odd couple uh, that are spearheading this, one is Hugh Hefner, and the other is Alice Cooper. And one of the intriguing parts about this is that they're both relative newcomers to Los Angeles. So they have the mystique of the sign inside them in a way that um, the residents don't. And very few people from the film business put any money into the reconstruction. So even the film business did not realize how important this synecdocal relationship was. I mean, didn't realize the publicity uh, of it and what it meant. Uh, so, but it, you know, it was reconstructed in 1978 in a much more permanent way, you know, with concrete pylons sunk into the earth and, uh, you know, with uh, really strong uh, supports and metal and everything and you know, baked on enamel and what have you. And, um, and that's a sign that exists today. And, yeah. and later it's, um, you know, people, uh, it would you know, get graffiti and things like that, but it's been, there have been a lot of alterations to the sign. The first one, was in 1976 when a young man named Danny Feingood was given an art project by his public art class at California State University at Northridge. And he took a couple pieces of black material and a couple pieces of white material and changed Hollywood to Hollyweed <laughs> because marijuana had just been decriminalized by the state of California. So after that, many different alterations so that finally now there are all sorts of motion sensors and cameras and things around it to try to prevent people from getting any closer to the sign. Wow. So when, when does the, the New York Times or the New York Post or the Washington Post or the Riverside Press Enterprise start referring to film and television drama in the United States as Hollywood. It's really the 20s, 1920s. It does start that It early. does start in the 20s. Uh, I found an article in the LA Times, well, no, it was in the Chicago Tribune, it was, not, it was not a local paper, it was the right. Chicago Tribune, which said the center of the movie making business. Uh, and what they were talking about was not Hollywood, it was Universal City, 1914, 1915 or so. Universal City uh, in the Valley. And This is the, uh, sorry, just to explain to people. Yeah. When we refer to the Valley, that now means the porn industry. <laughs> right. <laughs> and has for some time, but also the television industry and the movie industry. San Fernando Valley, uh, it's what Frank Zappa was singing about when he talked about Valley Girls. Mm -hmm. It's right. uh, the Universal Studios. Universal Studios is there, and lots of small and, and Warner Brothers as well. Warner Brothers and Disney, and it's where people learn to say like when yeah, they're very young. Right, I'm and, like, and she goes, and we're all right. whatever. Right, or, right, or, or, or gag me with a spoon or something. <laughs> yeah, gag on a spoon. Right, right, yeah. yeah. And so anyway, no, well, that then, so that was not, so. Yeah. Let's, let's say that's like 1914, 1915. Uh, by 1922 or 23, people, newspapers outside of, in the rest of the world are talking about Hollywood. <laughs> and uh, I see it in part. It's you know, it's it's a coming together of, of kind of pro Hollywood and anti Hollywood uh, forces, because anti Hollywood people keep calling it Hollywood too. You know, people who think that... Yeah, they want a singular object. Right. They want back to that personification thing we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to find, a, you know, to have a simple target. Yeah. And, you know, who is ruining American morality? Well, who is causing the downfall of Western civilization? Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a lot of scandals at this point, too. Fatty Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle scandal. Murder of William Desmond Taylor. The death of Wallace Reed from drug addiction. Uh, who was a big silent film hunk um, you know so so there's a lot of publicity about the tawdriness of hollywood right uh, at this point uh, in fact there's a edgar rice burroughs is the only non-tarzan or non-john carter or non-fantasy novel he writes is called the girl from hollywood which comes out in 1923 the same year that the hollywood sign goes up and it's all about you know sex and drugs and craziness going on in hollywood and finally the the people have to escape to, to nature, to a ranch, to purify themselves. 
And one of the stories you tell in your book is about a very tragic Hollywood sign suicide. Yes, I mean, there's a suicide in 1932 uh, by a, a young uh, actress named uh, Peg Entwistle, uh, who was found like 100 yards under the sign and with a note in her pocketbook, uh, a kind of suicide note. Um, and this story is picked up in general as a, um, you know, as a kind of, it, as a moralistic story about Hollywood. Thank you, darling. Thank you. Excuse me, listeners, I'm just having a little bite here. <laughs> um, it's picked up as a moralistic story about Hollywood. Here, she didn't, you know, she failed in Hollywood and so committed suicide. Uh, in fact, I don't know. I don't know what the real story is, but the note says nothing about this. The note refers to something that happened in the past. Uh, in fact, uh, the movie that she was in, called Thirteen Women, with uh, was a couple months before. There's some question about whether her option was picked up by our, by the studio or not. Uh, some say it was. Some say it wasn't. Depend, depending on what source you're looking at. Uh, but it was very immediate. She had actually been a, uh, an actor, a New York theater girl actress, you know, kind of ingenue. She'd been in a lot of plays. Uh, she was trying her hand in the movies, but she was in a lot of plays out here. Um, so it's just the, the show business connection to her suicide, yeah. which was glommed on by newspapers and everybody else who wanted to tell a moralistic story about Hollywood, seems to be somewhat dubious. Right. It's a complicated one, but it's an interesting and dramatic mm -hmm. exemplification of the power of the sign. Mm -hmm. And she's doing that as a symbolic act. Mm -hmm. Kind of now, a nice story. I mean, even if she hasn't done that, I mean, somebody should have. Somebody should have, if not. Well, I think, you know, in a certain way, uh, whether, whatever the truth of it is, she, she represents the first person who sees the sign emblematically. Yeah. Well, not well. So he was a semiotician monkey. Right, right. <laughs> of course, it said Hollywood land still when she jumped off. <laughs> now, uh, the book came out last year, 2011, from Yale University mm -hmm. Press. Right. Yeah, there's a series called Icons of America. Icons of America. And in, for scholarly books, that's still early days, but what's been the reception of it? thus far? Well, it's gotten, you know, it's gotten a lot of good reviews and, you know, all around. Uh, Hasn't been translated yet, so I don't know. Um, but it got some very good reviews in England, uh -huh. uh, as well as here. So, you know, I, having written so many books that are sort of semi-scholarly, semi-popular, I, you know, have to be patient. <laughs> I need... Well, let me ask you about that, Leo, because it's one of the very unusual qualities of your work, that it manages to span uh, attaining academic credibility your work is very highly regarded by scholars in the field, at the same time as you reach out to the you know, mythic, ordinary reader, the everyday person. Mm -hmm. Is that ever a tension for you in your creative work, or is it something that really isn't a, is not a dilemma? No, it's not a dilemma for me. I mean, I, I want to do both of those. I mean, I want to, I want to write something that uh, scholars in the area will not say, what an idiot. <laughs> and, but at the same time, that people who are not scholarly will think is interesting, in an yeah. interesting way into, into history. Um, it's, um, you know, I, the people that I admire as, as writers, you know, are people like uh, Edmund Wilson or Orwell or um, uh, Raymond Williams, you know, kind of English pragmatists, yeah. people like that. Yeah. You know, who, um, uh, I mean, always tried to stay away from the kind of um, esoteric, opaque, um, yeah. stay within in, within the discipline. Uh, and, you know, try to, and not only, not only with, not within the discipline, but also kind of reach across to find, you know, to bring these different kinds of material together, you know, to bring history together with literature, art history. Um, when I was um, in, uh, college and I took an aesthetics course, it was actually a great course, but you know one of the things that my uh, teacher and everybody at the time was very much against was zeitgeist. 
Really? They didn't believe, you know, no one believed in Zeitgeist. This was idiotic. Mm. Oh, so this is sort of Cleanth Brooks? Well, no, you know, Monroe Beardsley, do you know him? Sure, sure. Yeah, Monroe, he was my aesthetics teacher. Oh, he actually taught you, sorry. Yeah. I mean, yeah. People like me just read this stuff. You don't know everybody was taught by these people. Yeah, no, no, Monroe. Yeah. No, not at all. Dorothy, you're so sweet. Yeah, so Monroe Beardsley is. No, thanks. I'm doing all right. Yeah, the Monroe, you know, and Monroe was a great teacher. And, uh, oh, there. Yeah. And uh, very interesting. But, you know, he... Um, now, where was this, can I ask? Swarthmore. Pat Swarthmore. Yeah. And he... Um, well, he came, you know, his big problem was, was that we came to sort of at the end. He never quite decided. He kind of leaned one way, leaned the other. Was art intrinsically valuable or only instrumentally valuable? Or both. And how, how both? So that you know, kind of became a, you know something in my subconscious, I suppose. You know, to, mm -hmm. you know, say that in the, in the same way. You know, is academic discourse intrinsically valuable or, or instrumentally valuable? Does it change? Does it only fill a little piece on the shelf for mm -hmm. people in your discipline, or does it try at least to change minds mm -hmm. elsewhere? Mm -hmm. or? Mm -hmm. And so you've tried to reach out in both areas. Now, I'm thinking of a multi-generational, multi-decadal project that you've been involved in from time to time and have been a leading player in, which is the, I don't know how many editions, four or five? Seven. Pardon me. <laughs> seven of the film theory and criticism right. work that we alluded to earlier, um, which is with Oxford. Oxford, yeah. And it's the most successful set of anthologies in trying to understand analytically how cinema works. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's an interesting one. It's, it's not for the general reader so much, but it's definitely for the 18-year-old mm -hmm. as well as the graduate student. Yes, and it's, um, it, tries to, it tries to somehow bridge over the years the undergraduate graduate side. I mean, there are other anthologies that focus much more heavily on theory uh, and, you know, the cutting edge there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we try to include some of those, but we also want to get the foundational material, you know, the early things, the things by Eisenstein and Balas and um, people, you know, people like that and uh, Bazin. Um, and it's a struggle over the years. And, you know, we try to figure out Marshall Cohen and I. I came into it, I think, what, about the third edition. Jerry Maston and Marshall started it. Right, it was Maston Cohen did the first two editions, right. starting in about 76. Right. That about? Yeah, and then, yeah. Well, it started really, uh, Jerry and, and Marshall, uh, and, and I was there at the time, did a big conference in New York. It was like the first film studies conference, and certainly in America. In about '72 or '73, uh huh, oh, really, and you know, and brought over a lot of uh, uh, British literary uh, film critics, rather, and, and American ones, and you know, it was the beginning. It was at a time when there were very few film courses in in universities uh, around, and you know, the main the main voices in film criticism were like Pauline Kael and Dwight McDonald, and, and more the journalistic, yeah, Stanley Kaufman, uh, Andrew Saris. Uh, people who were great, but you know the, that it was not part of the university curriculum, and so this was sponsored by the city university and brought a lot of people together, and, and that uh, generated the first couple editions that Marshall and and did uh, Jerry okay. did. Yeah. And you personally, were you at Hopkins at that time? Where were I you? was. Let's see. I, no, then I was at Columbia. You were at Columbia. I was at Columbia, right. and then I moved to Hopkins in in uh, 1976. Right. Okay. So you're there, and do you now? Uh, Gerald Mar sadly dies pretty young. Yes. Are you involved before he passes away, or after? no? It was after because there was another it was sort of like five year gap between editions, mm -hmm. and uh, Jerry had died, and Marshall and I had both come to USC uh -huh. in uh, 1983, and he asked because me. Mast had been at Chicago, is that right? Right. He had. He was at Chicago. Right. And so um, Marshall asked me if I would come in for the next edition. And at that point, uh, and also the way it was worked out in terms of Jerry's estate, you know, his name was still on it. And he still, his estate still got some of the right, royalties. Right, because there's a moment when it's Mars, Cohen, and Brody. Right. And now it's just you and Cohen, I think. Right. right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. right. 
Yeah, so that was all worked out legally, right. whatever, through Oxford. Sure. But, you know, one of the problems with the anthology is that uh, by now, uh, such a large proportion of the, um, it's like, in, in, you know, entitlement programs. <laughs> you know, you want, you have to have these. Tr trying to, to make social security work through Oxford University <laughs> Press and film theory. You know, you have to have, ba you know, you have to have these essays, you know, Bazin. You must have that. Eisenstein, Bazin. you know. And, all these people, because that's what it's about. It's about you know, it's an effort to kind of uh, give a a, a a trip basically through the yeah. history of film criticism, yeah. Yeah. and then also try to do something about what's happening, what's the new things that are happening. So, the last edition, the seventh edition, and also Oxford doesn't want it to get any fatter <laughs> and more expensive. So you know, it's like the last time I think they said. Well, we want you to add 20% more articles, but cut the size by 20% at the same time. So, I mean, we're there in this kind of, you know, real um, pairing mode. And so the two things that we wanted to cover, the two new areas, were national cinemas and theories, theorization of national cinemas and also digitalization, too. So, there, you know, we got some new pieces in on that, but, you know, we... We still had to have Walter Benjamin, you know, we still have to have all, sure. you know, all the traditional I'd stuff. Sure. Something I'd love to do uh, would be to get you and, I don't know Cohen, uh, and Horace Newcomb together, because oh, sure. Horace's television, The Critical View, mm -hmm. begins in 76. Right, yeah, and no, I knew Horace then, yeah. And is also through about that number of editions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to talk about the pressures from publishers and the possibilities, the prospects, and so on. We might get Bruce Kawin too. Yes. You know, who took over Jerry Mass's uh, you know, History of the Movies yeah, anthology. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very interesting to do. Yeah. So, okay, we've got a quarter of an hour left, and I'm sure you're both very hungry and want to dash off to, the, to dinner, but I just want to sure. carry on a little bit, if we could. Sure. Leo. So, we've, we've talked about the Hollywood sign book. We've <coughs> talked about this... Reviewer Anthology, uh, the last edition that I'm aware of was 2004. Has there been one since? Uh, I, th I think so, yes. I think there's a 2004. See, even he doesn't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. You know, I, there is a seventh edition, that's yeah. what I know. The point I mean. is these things have been going for 35 years, and the reason they've been going for 35 years is that they work very well. And I've talked with, in the past, I'm sure, certainly there was a 2000 edition, which, mm -hmm. I I talked right. about, which was very good. In any event, in addition to those projects, uh, you've written many other books. What would you focus on? What would you like read listeners to know about in terms of things they might want to look at? Celeb the celebrity stuff's been very influential. Right, The Frenzy of Renown, which is a history of fame from Alexander the Great to almost to the present, um, and tries to understand how fame works in different societies and how it gets modified and you know what are the factors and how it gets created. And how it now the relationship between the famous and their audiences and things like yeah. that. Yeah, so that's definitely uh, one thing. Um, this uh, more recent book um, that I did called uh, From Chivalry to Terrorism, which is about the history of the changing nature of masculinity from about the Middle Ages onward. Um, yeah, you know, I'm very close to still. Uh, it hasn't quite. I mean, it came out in, what, 2003 or something like that. I figure it's like a 10-year lag, because these, these are large books. <laughs> by the time people get into them, it takes, by the time they yeah, finish no, they're them. Very, they're, they're, they're also very big themes. Yeah. Let's, let's devote a bit of time to each of them. Let's talk about celebrity, if you like, sure. or fame, and then let's talk about masculinity, and maybe there'll be some movement between the two. I need oh, to penetration, but then I stop myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thinking yeah. about celebrity, from Alexander the Great to, I'm sure you didn't write about Justin Bieber, but... No, 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 I didn't want to write about, well, when I wrote it, Justin Bieber was hardly oh, yeah. a gleam in his parents' four, eye at that four point. Four years old is... Or yeah, if he was Paris that, no, oh, he yeah. came out in '86. I don't know if Justin Bieber was alive even then. You know what? He wasn't even close to being alive. Right, <laughs> right. But I mean, I was alive, but I'm, but I was 28, but I was only just alive. <laughs> you know, right. Anyway, yeah. Well, it's, so the Frenzy Brunel is a book that I know well, uh, and many many people will know. 
Uh, I see it as, along with Boston, uh, the first wave of what's become celebrity studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it has, and it's taken off. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's interesting to me, because when I wrote it, I mean, there was Borston's book and, you know, maybe a couple others that kind of had a little piece of, of the subject. But, you know, people didn't think that there was really that there was a subject yeah. there. Yeah. And, um, in, you know, in the years since 86, it's been almost it's 25 years, actually, uh, more than 25 years, um, celebrity studies, other books have come out. Uh, things like that, and so I, you know, have this kind of, um, I feel like the godfather <laughs> of, of the field, mm -hmm. almost, uh, which is, you know, is nice. Uh, and it was, to me, it came out of the 70s. It came out of a kind of preoccupation with celebrity in the 70s. Uh, I was living in New York at the time, and in my usual way, I, you know, I was interested in the history of it. You know, I wanted to find out about it. I mean, I knew, I knew people were being, I was caught up, everybody, in, certainly in New York in that period, and I'm sure now too, were caught up in this whole idea of, the, of performance and sure. being known in that way, uh, in a way that it didn't quite exist before. Uh, and, but I wanted to find out where it came from, and I knew from my 18th century studies that everybody in the 18th century, all the literary people were always talking about literary fame, but they were judging themselves, and political fame, uh, they were judging themselves by the standard of the Romans, so I went back to the Romans, and the Romans, I found, were just judging themselves by the standard of Alexander the Great. And I went back to Alexander, and Alexander was judging himself by the standards of Achilles and the, and the gods and demigods. So I figured that was a good place to start, <laughs> and then I started moving forward from there. And it, you know, it basically the base, you know, the simple axis of it, of the book, and uh, is the relationship between a kind of Greco-Roman fame, which is physical fame in front of an immediate audience, and Christian Judeo-Christian fame, which is fame in front of uh, an audience of an invisible audience, whether that invisible audience is the audience of God or the audience of posterity, uh, and how those two uh, interweave, and how they change depending on the political system, because fame in a monarchy is different from fame in a democracy, and of course, uh, the available media. You know, fame in a, in a culture, um, in an illiterate culture, is different from obviously fame in a literate culture, or fame in a media culture. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, even something a little more spiritual, you know, what a culture thinks a, a perfect person is who is a model, a model of behavior, a model of being in a culture, too. So, I mean, all these kind of factors move in to the story. And what about in the quarter of a century, if we can use that expression, <laughs> since that book came out, as you say, we now have entire journals called Celebrity Studies. It's a field of academic discourse. It's obviously even more of an obsession, but really a meta-obsession in the media. Do you think things have shifted in the time since you wrote *The Frenzy of the Visible*? Not really. I don't think they've shifted. They've, you know, they've changed. There's certainly, as you say, there's much more quantity. There's, you know, you're, we're kind, of, we're more buffeted. We have more media outlets. Yeah. You know, we have Twitter and Facebook and places where people can stage themselves in a way that they never could before. Uh -huh. uh, and you have those kinds of evanescent fame, uh, but I think. You know, the basic parameters are pretty much the same. Yeah, i got to say, I think of Fabian and <laughs> right. our uh, younger counterparts as very similar. Mm -hmm. Fabian is over 50 years ago. Yeah. We love that moment in North to Alaska. <laughs> right. North. North to Alaska. Alaska. North. The rush <laughs> is on. When my memory is that Fabian or some figure like him is wandering around the Yukon or wherever it is with John Wayne and yeah. Wayne says, what's the name of that dog? And Fabian or whoever it is says, Spot. And Wayne said, but it's all black. <laughs> and Fabian says, it's one big spot. <laughs> I don't remember. That's good. Well, many of my memories are entirely constructed by me. <laughs> 
Well, I was thinking when you were saying about Fabian, I was thinking about uh, Ricky Nelson and, uh, and sure. Rio Bravo too. You know, the, yeah. you know, these kind of teen idols got absorbed into these. Absolutely, years. so similar to what we see today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so um, in, we've got about five minutes left. I'd love to move on, if we could, to uh, a few years later, onto this terrorism masculinity right. book, which is very interesting because I think masculinity has actually been a theme in your work for a long mm -hmm. time. But it's made front and center. In yeah, and I find that in writing in my books in general, I, you know, as I try to you know, psychoanalyze myself about where I go from one to the other, something that's often a sub-theme in one becomes a major theme in, in the next. Is uh, that so? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And in, in, the, you know, in the frenzy of renown, uh, the masculine relationship to fame was very much an issue, uh, and so um, the, the uh, from chivalry to terrorism, kind of tried to look at that a little more directly. Uh, and you know, as with fame, I wanted to see again that masculinity, which is usually used as this word that has no history, or this concept that has no history, to see how it changes and uh, how it changes. In terms, of, well, I, you know, one of the principal ways is the relationship of uh, individuals to the state, in particular. Uh, what's the difference between uh, a, a medieval feudal society and what masculinity means there, as opposed to a, a the beginnings of the nation state, where people become citizens and have military obligations as citizens, and then how does masculinity? change in that way and, and what's the relationship of course between masculinity and femininity uh, you know how they polarize in, in certain cultures and you know um, the discovery of you know discovery of gender difference even I mean you know, obviously gender difference is always there from the beginning but when it becomes conceptualized yeah when people start talking about it uh, well, what, what men are like what women are like you know yeah, things like that sure uh, so it you know it's the it, it's and the place of violence in that oh yeah and, and not just in a psychological sense but in a structural and political sense mm -hmm. and I think that's encapsulated wonderfully in the title of your book yeah and this from chivalry to terrorism and in chivalry uh, itself the chivalric code was in great part uh, grew up because of the effort to control violence mm. uh, I mean even you know the crusades. When the Crusades were preached, uh, and you know, you could kind of paraphrase Saint Bernard or people like that, saying things like, "Don't kill your neighbors. Let's go and kill the infidel instead." Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, there's an effort to yeah. kind of create a, an honor code uh, to control violence, mm. and so the whole so, question of honor and masculinity become intertwined. So imperialism in this is not just an accumulationist strategy. It's actually partly about domestic control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very much that you know that is uh, we can um, we can make our own polity coherent uh, if we have a, a common enemy. Right. You know. So let me ask you to, about masculinity today. Again, as somebody who is a literary theorist, a literary historian, a film theorist, a film historian. A, cultural chronicler, as it were, uh, how would you historicize or place the current moment, say, in U.S. masculinity? Well, it's intriguing from what we were just talking about, that um, the kind of uh, intense uh, partisanship uh, of... Politically. Political partisanship of the Republicans yeah. and Democrats and the kind of posturing that goes on and the role, uh, you know, the, the way uh, gay marriage functions as are as a wedge issue or things like that. Yeah. Uh, who is our enemy? I mean, is this a kind of product of the fall of the Soviet Union? Uh, Are we still dueling in this country with the lack of Sovietism as an other? I think, yeah, I mean, that's certainly one way of seeing it in a, in a large context, sure. That um, so long as um, so long as the so the Cold War continued, and so long as the Soviet Union existed and was the other there, uh, there were there were certain kinds of cultural modes of talking about masculinity and femininity and things like that. And 
um, and there was a you know America versus Russia uh, headset. Uh, but then with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we're sort of adrift. I've often wondered if one of the reasons why the Republican Party is so insane is because the Democratic Party has become its Soviet Union. Well, that's a good, that's a really interesting, sure. That is, you know, they, every, they need, the, the, the Republicans need the Democrats as another more than the Democrats need the Republicans. Absolutely. If you go back to when you and I were young, 40 years ago, the Republicans were a sane party. Mm -hmm, sure. Now, I, there's still a lot of sane Republicans around, I think, but they've sort of head, headed for the woods or something. The they're, parties. They're in hiding, yeah. You know no, the party mean? is taken over by, by the, uh, you know, the people who are anxious and paranoid. And, uh, yeah. Uh, Elliot Richardson mm -hmm. uh, could not be a Republican politician today. Most? Nelson Rockefeller, you know, most of those people uh, yeah. you know, couldn't, have, couldn't be Republicans today. Um, for all sorts of reasons, Richard Nixon. Well, you know, when Nixon starts looking good, you know you're in trouble. You're in trouble. <laughs> now, speaking of trouble, Leo Brody, we're all going to be excited by, maybe troubled by, this next book, which I assume is going to be the one on monsters and detection. Uh, I want to extract a promise from you, if I may, that when that book is finished, you'll come back to the pod and grace us again with your presence. Uh, absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank you, Always Toby. Always great to chat.